Okay, it's Thursday, December 1st, and we're just six days away from December 6th, the pivotal day when the election for the Senate seat in Georgia, that is still undecided because of the necessary runoff prescribed by Georgia state law when no candidate receives 50% or more in the general election, between Reverend Warnock, the left-wing radical who currently holds the seat, and gridiron star and Georgia hero Herschel Walker. Now, this is an important, important election. It will not cede control of the committees to the Republicans if Walker wins, because they still have the tie-breaking vote in the vice president's chair, but it will help them to stop a lot of things that get going. Uh, It makes it much more difficult. Once they've got 51 in control, the chamber, then a lot of things can happen. But if they get to 50, it makes a big, big deal. And there's also some independents that caucus with the Democrats. So I believe if they get 50, uh, they may be able to uh, stalemate everything. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of three easy ways. Go to the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store, depending on which device you use, and download the free Podbean app, which is our hosting service. You can subscribe that way. Or you can also simply search out The Jamie Dury Show in either of your native podcast aggregator apps, depending on which device you use. And you can subscribe to the show that way. Either way, you'll be notified when new episodes are uploaded, and you'll also be able to leave reviews, comments, and you can always email me directly at jamiedury1776 at gmail.com. If there's a topic you'd like me to cover or a question you wish to ask me, always happy to accommodate. So what's the story with this election in Georgia? Well, as you know, they both ended in the high 49s. They weren't able to break 50% either one of them. Now, part of the problem was there was a libertarian candidate in the general election who took 2% of the vote. Now, libertarians are for less government. So if you took away a libertarian option and you gave the people who voted for the libertarian the choice of voting for either the Democrat or the Republican slash conservative candidate, if they're true libertarians, they would invariably vote for the latter because the philosophy of the Republican Party, or at least it used to be, and the conservative uh, party are more in line with the libertarian philosophy than the Democrats are. Democrats and liberals. So in theory, that 2% should, in most cases, migrate over to Herschel Walker. The other side of the coin is you could say that because Brian Kemp was running for governor, he was at the top of the ticket, that that presence on the ballot helped Herschel Walker a lot because people, when they vote top of the ticket down and they're in that row anyway and they go for Kemp, it's much easier just to go click, 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 click and go straight down the line. Without that presence of Kemp, we don't know how it's going to shake out. But it also does not reflect well on an incumbent when they have to go to a runoff election. A lot of them apparently lose when they have to go to a runoff election. And the Democrats, I don't care what anybody tells you, are not a hot brand right now. A lot of what they've done, they've been able to do because blue states have gotten bluer. Uh, They haven't done well in red states. And I think there's still a little bit of chicanery going on with the voting, as you can see in Arizona, with all the acrimony out there and all the controversy. Also, what is very telling here is 
No national Democrat, that means not Kamala Harris, not Joe Biden, no national Democrat has campaigned in the state of Georgia for Representative Raphael Warnock. That's it. Now today, the first big name is coming in. President Barack Obama will appear at a rally in Atlanta. And he is the only national Democrat who has campaigned in the state of Georgia for Senator Warnock. Now, I don't think that that's as big a deal as other people may think. Barack Obama never was a power to be reckoned with in terms of the efficacy of his endorsements. Anybody he endorsed didn't do that well. The, the star quality that people assigned to him because he was the first African-American president, polished and all that, well-spoken, uh, it didn't seem to transfer to other people. Whereas Donald Trump, when he endorses people, uh, these people are philosophically wedded to the ideals that Trump expresses because it's their ideals, and he's become the de facto leader of a movement. So when he tells people, I think you should vote for this person, in the furtherance of that movement, they vote for him. Barack Obama, when he tells you to vote for someone, there's no movement that he's leading. Uh, and I don't think he was that popular as he was going out of office. In fact, you'll note that when Barack Obama, it's one of the reasons why I said there's no question that Trump won. They talk about Barack Obama being so popular. Joe Biden got more votes, if you want to believe that, than Barack Obama ever got. And when Barack Obama ran for re-election in 2012 against Mitt Romney, he won re-election with 3 million fewer votes in the popular vote than he had received in 2008 when he originally ran against um, the late Senator John McCain from Arizona. So he got less popular the longer he stayed around. Conversely, Donald Trump actually got 11 million more votes than he got when he ran the first time. So it's unthinkable uh, when we suddenly get uh, 20 million more voters in the United States, where these people come from. Uh, if people were dissatisfied with Trump, he wouldn't have gained votes. He would have lost votes. And the notion of the guy that never left his basement got 80-some-odd million votes more than Barack Obama got, a guy who was visible whenever he campaigned and made an appearance, uh, I'm not buying it, and a lot of Americans aren't buying it either. But notwithstanding all of that, Barack Obama is going to appear at a rally in Atlanta to campaign for Warnock. And Herschel Walker is needed in, in the Senate. Now, Ralph Reed is the founder and chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. He warmed up a Republican crowd uh, for Walker in Dalton back on November 30th. That's yesterday. Uh, if Walker wins, the Republicans and Democrats will have equal membership on Senate committees, such as judiciary and so forth. Quote, that means without a Republican, they can do much, they can't do much of anything in the Senate. It means they can't issue subpoenas and engage in kangaroo court investigations. It means they can't import radical liberals to the court. But if we come up short here, every one of those committees goes to 11-9, every one of them, and they can ram through anything they want. That's true. Now, Reed was one of the latest of many high-profile Republicans to campaign with Walker and for Walker. Uh, Governor Brian Kemp has campaigned for Walker. Senator Lindsey Graham has campaigned for Walker. Rick Scott from Florida has campaigned for Walker. 
Uh, and that's why they're trying to tie Warnock to Biden, because Biden is not a popular man right now. It's one of the reasons why he has not campaigned for Warnock. Now, it looks like there's a reluctance in the early voting. By the end of the day yesterday, November 30th, about 834,000 of Georgia's 7 million active voters had cast ballots. They did this either through early voting or by returning absentee ballots. That's 12% of all active voters, according to the Georgia Secretary of State's website. Now, if tradition still holds, that means that most of those are Democratic votes, uh, because the Democrats more likely vote early than Republicans. It also means there's going to be a big turnout, hopefully, on Election Day. If there is, the bulk of that will be Republican voters. Um, Reid has a couple of ideas about how Walker could win. He expressed confidence that Walker could win. He ticked off several reasons why and how Walker might close uh, the 38,000 vote gap from the general election. That's how close it was. Warnock got 49.4% and Walker got 48.5%. Nine-tenths of a percent separated them. Reid pointed out that a million Republicans who voted in the 2022 primary and general elections hadn't yet voted in the runoff compared to only a half a million Democrats who haven't yet voted in the runoff. If the Republican turnout is good, that's good for Walker. In the 2021 Senate runoffs, Purdue lost to John Ossoff by about 50,000 votes, and Kelly Loeffler lost to Warnock by about 100,000 votes. But between 125 and 150,000 voters in the three heavily Republican congressional districts alone did not return to the polls for that runoff amid the controversy over the 2020 election results. Two years ago, he says, Republicans were divided and fighting among themselves. And this time, they're totally united with Brian Kemp and Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell all rowing in the same direction to get Herschel across the finish line. Mitch McConnell's a piece of garbage. I don't know why you even mention his name. I think we got to get rid of him. But I think they are united with Brian Kemp and Donald Trump to get Herschel Walker across the line. So I expect that Walker will win this election. I am very hopeful, I should say, that Walker will win this election. I think it'd be good for the country. I think it'd be good for the state of Georgia. Now, there's a couple of other things I wanted to touch on today, uh, things that are not normally spoken about. One was an item that was briefly mentioned in the news, uh, and it should be getting more attention than it is. I'm going to save that for the end and close with it. Before that, I want to talk about something else. As you all know by now, Nancy Pelosi is the outgoing Speaker of the House. When the Congress changes hands, or should I say, when the House of Representatives changes hands um, in January, Nancy Pelosi will no longer be the Speaker of the House. They have elected uh, a new Speaker of the House. It's going to be McCarthy for the Republican side. But the Democrats have to name, you know, minority leader, minority whip, and all this sort of thing. And even though she could, and she has been in the past when the Democrats were out of power, Nancy Pelosi vowed that she would not take any position. She would not be uh, the minority uh, whip. She wanted to take no position, just be a congressperson, and that would be it. She wouldn't be anything else but a congressperson. And she'll probably retire pretty soon. She's 80-some-odd years old. She's stolen enough money. They don't need her anymore. So who's the minority leader, the new minority whip? Hakeem Jeffries, 
then you can't get much more radical than Hakeem Jeffries. He's one of those real, real uber leftist uh, congressmen. And where is he from? Naturally, my home state of New York. Now, one of the little mentioned things is that Hakeem Jeffries, in a um, show of chutzpah, is saying that they're not going to act like they're the minority party. They're not slowing down. They're not stopping. They're going to go forward. They're going to go forward with their agenda or try to. And one of the things he's pushing is for reparations for blacks for slavery. Uh, and he's all part of this 1619 project. Now, some of you may have heard of this 1619 project, and some of you may not have. So I'm going to read a little bit for you here from a synopsis of what the 69 project is. 1619. It's basically revisionist history. The 1619 Project is a long-form journalism endeavor developed by a woman named Nicole Hannah-Jones, writers from the New York Times and New York Times Magazine, and their intention is to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the United States national narrative. And that's always what it's been, just like what Barack Obama was doing, trying to say that Muslims were helping to found America. When were there Muslims here during the founding of America? Not that I knew of. The very first publication stemming from the project was in the New York Times Magazine of August 2019 to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in the English colony of Virginia. But it was a colony. It wasn't a country. So the fact that people were enslaved from 1619 uh, as slaves to colonists doesn't mean they were enslaved under law in a country. And I suspect that this tie to the 1619 project that, that uh, Jeffries is trying to make is trying to build any potential uh, reparations that would be given to blacks in this country by saying that there was a a lengthier period of slavery than there actually was under the auspices of a country. You can only say people were enslaved in the United States of America from 1776 on when we declared our independence from Great Britain. And then it took until 17 and then it took until 1787 before we actually had a constitution. So in terms of slavery existing in the actual United States of America, uh, slavery existed in a country called the United States of America for less than 100 years because the country wasn't formed until 1776 and slavery ended uh, with the Civil War and it actually ended even before the Civil War when legally when Abe Lincoln signed the Emancipation uh, Proclamation. So I suspect this is designed deliberately to try and revise history illegitimately and make it seem that there was a longer history of slavery than there was for the purposes of getting a greater amount of money for reparations, if that's ever paid. Now, let's address reparations themselves. Now, I don't profess to be an attorney, but reparations, awards, these things are all fashioned. That's my loyal guardian in the background you just heard. Um, they're all fashioned based on the results of the harm and what position you would be in were it not for the harm. So I assume the harm in this case is the negative effects of slavery. But nobody that's alive today in the United States of America 
was ever a slave. They may have had ancestors who were slaves, but they are not slaves. And so now, from whom are these reparations to be derived? Presumably from the people who benefited directly from the slaves' labors, and that is the slave owners, the people who own plantations and farms. Uh, They're all gone, and I don't know that you can sue their estates. It's much, much more removed. So now they're trying to fashion new law and say we have to sue the United States government. But where does the government get its money from? It gets it from taxpayers, many of whom were not even here during slavery, and many of whom whose ancestors weren't even here yet when slavery was legal in the United States. My own ancestors came from Italy, and none of them were here prior to the uh, the, uh, Civil War. Uh, My grandfather, who I think was the first of my family to come here, was born, wasn't born until 1892, uh, and he didn't come here uh, the day he was born. He came as a very young man, but I think he didn't come till after 1900, so we were never here when slavery was in vogue. So what is the position of people who are here now, who are the ancestors of slaves? What would their lives be like were it not for slavery? Well, I don't mean to make light of it. I think slavery was a terrible thing. It's always been a terrible thing. Uh, It's never right for one race to enslave another. But the reality is, if the slaves were not brought here to the United States, the descendants of those slaves who live here now would not be living in the United States. They would presumably be living in the country of origin where their ancestors came from, which would be somewhere on the African continent, in which case it is a foregone conclusion that their quality of life and their station in life would be far inferior to what they're enjoying today. They may, in actuality, be living in abject poverty. Remember, Barack Obama's half-brother, who he denies and doesn't give a dime to, lived in Kenya, I think, for a dollar a day. He lived on a dollar a day. He was in abject poverty and was not a fan of his half-brother. And this was the half-brother of the President of the United States. It's hard for me to believe that many of the other descendants of slaves that were brought here would be in much better circumstances if they were left to grow up in Africa. So I don't know if there's any legal basis. But they're going to try. And if they do, I'm going to provide my legal basis. You know, this revisionist history that's going on in the country wants to credit Africans with every single invention we, we ever had, uh, based basically on the fact that Egyptians were black. Uh, and so if they're black and they did great things, then therefore it's, it was done by, by black people. But as one of the prominent reverends in Harlem pointed out, no white man ever set foot in Africa before the 15th century. And you can't find anything built in Africa before the 15th century other than the pyramids. And those are built by Egyptians, but you can't find anything further south of that in Africa. Johannesburg is a city in South Africa. It's a fabulous city, but it was built by white Dutch settlers, and the people who are there now are trying to tear it up. So there's nothing there. Never been anything there. So I don't know you can make these, these arguments. They seem to be arguments without substance. But if you want to stick with that argument, then you also have to accept the negative that comes with it. If Egyptians are black, and you're using that to say that all these great inventions were invented by black people, then then black people were the first slave owners themselves, because they enslaved the Israelites, did they not? 
Those are the ones who built the, uh, the pyramids, the Levi's, the Hebrews, all these people, all these various tribes of Israel were enslaved by the Egyptians. So you have to be careful what you wish for. And if that's the case, let's take myself, because this is what I'll do if they say I own reparations. My father's side of the family descended from Sicily. Now, Sicily, hundreds of years ago, maybe a thousand years ago, was conquered by the Moors from North Africa. And the Moors are black. And they occupied Sicily for some time. And they changed the whole bloodline because they raped and pillaged the country. Prior to that time, a lot of Sicilians were blonde and blue-eyed like a lot of people from northern Italy. Now they have black hair and dark skin. So I assume, my father, for instance, was uh, much darker than I, with jet black hair. My mother's family was from the north of Italy, so my hair was never quite as dark, but I have an olive complexion when I get in the sun. So I assume if I do a DNA test, I can find that I have African-American blood in me. And if I do, then why should I have to pay reparations? I guess I'm an oppressed person too. See, we can carry this stuff to ridiculous conclusions if you want. We can give America back to the Indians. We can um, have to make the Egyptians pay reparations to the Israelis. I mean, we can go down the road back and forth. The fact of the matter is, just as the United States wasn't a country when Europeans came here, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the North American continent wasn't a country when the Europeans came here. There was no United States of America when the Europeans came here in 1619 because there were no states to be united in the first place. It took place over time, and then it formed a country. It wasn't a country until 1776, and that's the end of it. Now, one little last tidbit that I want to cover today, which I think you'll find interesting. Now, I just recently spoke to a friend of mine who's in the security business, and he wasn't even aware of it. And he makes it his business to be aware of things like this, which just goes to show you that it's not the result of any dereliction on his part in his observance, but rather a dereliction on the part of the news media who gave very little coverage to what I'm about to tell you. The Bidens have a tradition of vacationing for the Thanksgiving holiday on the island of Nantucket. I wonder if they visited the Obamas while they were there. Didn't they buy that, that, island, that island home for $30 million? You know, you buy an island home for $30 million, tell the rest of the world that uh, global warming is causing the seas to rise and everyone's going to be underwater, but you spent $30 million on a home. You don't seem to be too concerned it's going underwater, which indicates just how much you believe in the climate change, but you're selling everybody else on the garbage. So it's all very interesting. Um, in any event, the Bidens vacation in Nantucket every year for Thanksgiving. That's a fact. Now, apparently, while they were there last week, the Secret Service rented five vehicles from Hertz to carry President Biden and his family around the island. Not that it's a very big island. Now, that's shocking to me uh, in the first place because I think that's probably a departure from protocol. 
I don't know why the United States government, with its vast resources, would ever rent cars from a private company. You would think they would have cars in inventory, just like they have two or three limousines to carry the president wherever he goes and wherever he travels. That limousine is flown on an Air Force C-130, transported to the country where it is, and it's disembarked and gotten ready, and he drives in that, in that vehicle. And I would think they have other contingencies, SUVs, all come from the same company, uh, government contract, uh, appropriately bulletproofed and uh, incendiary-proofed for security purposes that travel with the first family and his, uh, his guests and take them around in a secure fashion. So it came quite as a shock to me that the Secret Service would rent vehicles from Hertz. And they rented five vehicles, a Chevy Suburban, Ford Explorer, an Infiniti QX80, a Ford Expedition, and a Jeep Gladiator. Now, I mentioned this to emphasize the fact that these are all five completely different vehicles. So you can't say that what I'm about to tell you is the result of a design flaw in any one of them. Now, these Jeeps of these SUVs were returned back to the Nantucket Airport because his, most airports have rent-a-car facilities there. It were parked there. Just hours or less than a day after the Bidens left, these vehicles all burst into flames, and the fire spread pretty rapidly, getting as close as just 40 feet from the jet fuel tanks at the airport. And God knows what would have happened uh, if that caught fire. Apparently, the cause of the fire is unknown. Uh, Fox News and other agencies have reached out to the White House at, at the time of this writing in the article that I'm reading, but they've received no reply and no comment. Quote, at approximately 5.22 a.m., airport shift staff observed an active fire in the rental car overflow area through the airport's closed-circuit television system. This was 5.22 yesterday. That would be Wednesday, the 30th. Staff activated the alert system and responded to the fire in Airport 3, where they were met by responding units from the Nantucket Fire Department and the Nantucket Police Department. And there's photos here of Nantucket firefighters putting um, uh, fire extinguishers and such on the vehicles. Now, these vehicles are all sitting next to a bunch of other vehicles. This is the, obviously the repository in the airport where all the rental cars go. And they're all parked side by side, and then some of them facing each other. And the front of the vehicles are all burned up. How did all five of these vehicles catch fire? Did one catch fire and set fire to the rest? Were they all burned? Were there some sort of explosive devices in them? I, I don't know. But it seems very queer and unusual to me that the Secret Service is, A, renting vehicles to protect the first family from Hertz, which to my knowledge has never been done. I, if I'm wrong, I want to be corrected. And then they do this unprecedented act, and now all five vehicles go up in flames, and nobody is reporting it or saying anything about it. There's something rotten in Denmark here, and we should get to the bottom of it. So we're going to continue to follow this story, and we're not about to just forget about it and let it go. We want to follow up on this. We want to know what the answers are. And we demand answers, and we encourage our friends in the media to demand answers as well. If, if no one else, hopefully Fox News or Newsmax uh, 
will ask what the story is, and uh, I want to know. I really do want to know, and I think you want to know as well. So stay tuned, and we'll keep you updated on that. That's all for now. For the Jamie Dury Show podcast, I'm Jamie Dury. Thank you.